Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes Do You Understand the Reformation? Don't Be Anxious, God Made Everything, God's Weakness, Here's how Christmas changed you. Enjoy. It's Reformation Day, my dudes, and I'm here to inform you about that Reformation and how many of you, not all, may not actually understand what's going on with the Reformation. What do I mean? Let's get into it. The Reformation, properly understood, was something that took place during the 16th century, so the 1500s. And a lot of people, you know, they would say that Martin Luther is probably at the center of this Reformation. Now, obviously, the Reformation lasted more than a single year and involved more than a single person. And there are arguments about when exactly the Reformation began and who all was involved, who was invited to the party, who contributed. And... There's some valid things to argue about there, and I think this is why a lot of people don't understand the Reformation. Now, again, many of you probably understand the Reformation better than I do. But the Reformation, properly understood, was not a restart. It was not a great restart. It was not a reset. It was not a replacement. The Reformation was not Martin Luther, this crazy, angry old drunk, decided one day, you know what I don't like? The Roman Catholic Church, so I'm going to just tip them over and start all over from scratch. That is not what the Reformation was. The Reformation, not replacement, the Reformation was actually an attempt by the Christians at the time to reform the church, to guide it, well, not to guide it, to hope that God would guide the church back onto the path from which she had strayed, at least in some areas. Now, you've got to keep in mind that the Reformation while mostly, at least at the beginning, was between who would later be called the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics, and then, you know, later on with the enthusiasts, as Martin Luther called them, uh, Calvinists and Zwingliists and whatnot, um, there were other Christian organizations on the earth. I mean, there was not a whole lot of interaction between Martin Luther and the Eastern Orthodox, but the Eastern Orthodox Church certainly existed. It existed at, you know, in the the state that they were for a significant amount of time. There were all kinds of Orthodox all around. Uh, There's the Eastern Orthodox, Russian and the Greek. There were the Coptic Orthodox. There were all kinds of different groups of Christians all around the world. Christianity had already spread in, you know, various locations around the world. So while this Reformation was important, it didn't involve all of the players in the entirety of the Christian religion. So what the Reformation was not, the Reformation was not a replacement. The Reformation was not the teaching of new doctrines never before heard of and the rejection of time-honored classics that were just, you know, that were taught from Jesus in the mouth of St. Peter himself since the very beginning in the book of Acts. That's not what it was. It wasn't meant to destroy the Roman Catholic Church or to to cause schism. In fact, if you follow the life of Martin Luther, he never decides to break off from the Roman Catholic Church. His idea to reform is that he wants the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine to become pure, for them to confront the abuses, for them to discuss the confusions. This is why in 1517, when he he nailed the 95 Theses to to the door at Wittenberg, He wasn't, I mean, he was purely Roman Catholic at that point. He was doing what, you know, this was a a university practice. He says, these are theses, these are topics that I would like to discuss. These are things that I want to, you know, let's let's talk about these things. He didn't, he didn't nail the Augsburg Confession to the, uh, to the door. He nailed the 95 theses, which are not Lutheran doctrine. If, if, if you believe that the 95 theses teach Lutheran doctrine, then Continue reading on the history of Martin Luther because his understanding of the Christian faith developed significantly from there. That was just kind of what many people see as a starting point. The the reformers, and I'm going to say the Lutheran reformers, 
Uh, the Lutheran reformers never considered themselves a new church. It was never a schism away from the Roman Catholic Church. It was never a replacement. It was never a, a demolishing and let's go back to square one. It was people who consider themselves Roman Catholic of the Augsburg Confession. They consider themselves Roman Catholic. They would say that the Roman Catholic Church in the West was the visible true church. Of course, the invisible true church uh, includes all of Christendom all throughout the world, but in the West, the Roman Catholic Church was the visible true church. Unfortunately, due to later innovations and inventions of doctrine that cropped up over time, uh, there were some bad things that happened in, in, in the Roman Catholic beliefs. There were some bad practices, like the selling of indulgences, that, that took place. And interestingly enough, there was enough division in the Roman Catholic Church that there's actual plausible deniability that some people have to say, well, uh, you know, that, that, that Tetzel guy who was selling these indulgences, ah, see, he didn't count because he was, uh, he was off doing his own thing and, uh, and uh, uh, he was not part of the, you know, the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy or whatever. But there were things like this happening all the time and it wasn't until the Council of Trent that you really have this kind of unified statement of, look, here are the decrees and the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church writ large. There was enough room for deviation that even if the Roman Catholic Church itself was free from error in its teaching, which it was not, unfortunately, there were people who could deviate enough within the acceptable parameters to teach and to practice wrong things. So the Reformation was not designed to replace the Roman Catholic Church, but rather, rather to, to bring back the Roman Catholic Church to her roots, which is scripture, and of course confessed by the creeds and the church fathers, albeit not perfectly, they did err as well, uh, the, the church fathers, and they disagreed with one another and even their own statements over time. Um, but it was not a replacement of the Roman Catholic Church. It was a reformation, a reformation of the Roman Catholic Church, which goes to the other side as well. There were some who would come up later and they would call themselves Protestants or Protestant reformers or something like that. They would come up after Luther and the Lutherans and they would say, well, let's start over from square one. Let's schism away from the, from the Roman Catholic Church. Let's have the Anglican Church. Let's say, you know, let's start Zwinglianism and Calvinism and all these other things. And these were severe deviations from the historic Christian Church. This was not, this was not as the Lutherans tried to do, trying to keep all of the good things and excise all of the bad later additions of the Roman Catholic Church, but this was a belief to start from square one, to go back to the Church of the Apostles, to ignore, you know, all of the all of the liturgy and the hymns and the, and the things that have been developed, the creeds and all these things that were developed over time, all these confessions that were, you know, based on actual well-done theology over time, these traditions and history, and they wanted to just throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, you know what, it's too difficult to discern which things are good and which things are bad, so let's just start all over. And that was not what the Lutherans were about. And so that, that's, that's the Protestant Reformation side that the Lutherans are not, real, not a part of at all. And in fact, opposed to, uh, Martin Luther would famously say that he would rather, I mean, this is later on, when he stops being as angry at the Pope and he starts being more angry at the Zwingliists, he says, I would rather drink pure blood with the Pope than wine with the, the enthusiasts. So uh, yeah, is, yeah. But so on, on the Protestant side, Lutherans weren't really a part of that. They didn't want to destroy and, re and recreate the church. They wanted to reform it into what it, into what it was, keeping as much good history and tradition as possible and only excising those bad things. On the other hand, they were not, as the Roman Catholics suggested, trying to invent some new doctrine. Now, of course, you're wondering, how have I gotten this far without talking about the Bible? Well, the five solas of the Reformation, the five sole of the Reformation are see if I remember them all. Uh, sola fide, saved by faith alone. Sola gratia, saved by, you know, through grace alone. Um, sola scriptura, uh, that scripture alone is the highest authority by which all other authorities, valid or invalid, are judged on doctrine. Um, let me see, that's three of them. Solus, solus Christus, I believe is how you pronounce the Latin. That's uh, Christ alone is the one mediator and sa savior of the world. Uh, we don't need a, a co-redemptrix, for example, um, or a co-mediator. Um, and of course, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And the interesting thing about these things is these are not, I mean, you know, these are the, the, the five solos of the Reformation. This is, this is, you know, 
around which the theology was, 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 was summarized. But these are not new things. And if you read Romans chapter 3, which is what we had for the epistle reading for today, I would argue that you can actually find all five, find all five sole, all five solas in that document alone. Now, of course, people are going to argue about sola scripture. Well, the Bible never says that scripture alone is the only authority. Well, the Bible says that, you know, the Bible is God's word. And never is any other source of doctrine given that high of an authority. So even in Romans chapter 3, which is the epistle for today, um, Paul is referring, refers back to um, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Uh, that we are taught these things that we learn. Uh, and he talks about, um, you know, you are saved by you are saved by faith, and um, and that all mouths will be stopped by the law. So nobody has an opportunity to brag because, and this is a great one, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, yes, even Mary, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is righteous. No, not one. But they're justified freely by the grace that comes the grace and the faith that they have in Christ Jesus their Lord. All have sinned and are fallen short of the glory of God. And they're justified freely by grace. And you can find you can find these teachings here of, you know, grace alone saves you. It's not your works and faith that saves you. It's faith alone that saves you. Uh, it's Christ alone who, who saves you. It's to God alone be the glory. You have no 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 place to brag. So this idea that these Lutheran reformers were inventing some heretical new uh, Protestant innovation is completely absurd. All these things that Luther and Chemnitz taught, all these things that they were that became part of the you know the the confessions of the Lutheran Church, these things come from Scripture. They're just explanations and summary of what's said in Scripture. They're just organized snippets of scripture. I mean, this is how we get hymns and liturgies. They're just chunks of scripture organized in a way that we can remember them and reference them and understand them better. So in conclusion, neither the general Protestant view nor the Roman Catholic view really gets what the Reformation was trying to accomplish or what was actually being accomplished. The general Protestant might, might believe that this was all about, you know, tearing out the entire institution, branch, trunk, and root, and starting over from square one, and that's not what it was about. On the other hand, the Roman Catholic view that the Reformation was all about schisming and starting a new church, which might actually be true regarding the general Protestant view, is not what the Luther Reformation was about. Neither were any of these any of these teachings novel or innovative, new or inventions. These are things from Scripture, things that were confessed, as Martin Chemnitz very accurately points out, by many church fathers and by many people over time. There's a reason people refer to Martin Luther as a Hussite, because Martin Luther was not the first one to come up with sola fide. I mean, aside from it being in Scripture, Martin Luther found out that these people in the past, some of which he considered heretics, like Johann Huss, actually ended up being killed because they were talking about the truth in Scripture. And of course, Huss wasn't the only one. There were some who got it, you know, somewhat right. There are people like Marsiglio de Padua and others who you can look through history and find out that the, that, the, that the Lutherans weren't just inventing these things out of thin air. It wasn't like the concept that... Uh, that the Lord's Supper is a is a representation and, and a metaphor, or that baptism doesn't save. It wasn't like those things where they were, you know, not present in history uh, up until, you know, the 1500s, 1600s, but rather Luther and the Reformers, the Lutheran Reformers, were confessing the things that were confessed in Scripture and by the Church Fathers. Now again, the Church Fathers often disagreed with one another and with themselves, which is why that we had all of their, all their statements are judged by Scripture and Sola Scriptura. Anyways, you may understand the Reformation better than the person next to you or the person uh, on the other side of this camera from you. And that's fine. But there are many people out there who don't really understand what was going on in the Reformation, and I hope this video was, was somewhat helpful for you. And you should really read Romans, Romans chapter 3. It really gets into it. And as you're reading it, see if you can spot each of the five, the five sole in Romans chapter 3. In any case, Christ died for you. He saved you by grace, through faith, as we know by scripture. Christ alone, and to God alone be the glory, forever and ever. Amen. You have a wonderful weekend, and God bless.
Don't be anxious about anything. Man, that sounds like something that's just easier said than done, right? In fact, it almost sounds like something that's impossible. How can you possibly not be anxious about anything? Unless maybe you don't care about anything. Well, that's not the direction that, uh, that God's going in Philippians chapter 4. But hey, let's get into it. chapter 4, we have a command, um, and it's, it's, I would say it's equal part command, equal part encouragement. God says, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things, in prayer, and supplication, and thanksgiving, you know, bring it all to God, basically. The Lord is at hand. That's how it starts off. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, there's a lot of things to be anxious about. I mean, you're talking about illness, elections, international diplomacy, warfare, hacking, you know, you name it. There's plenty of things that we are really easily able to be anxious about. And definitely things that we can become anxious about just by, you know, they're part of our daily life. Definitely, it sounds, it, it sounds like an excuse to be anxious, honestly. We have plenty of excuses to be anxious. But so how can God tell us, do not be anxious about anything? Well, there's a certain kind of peace that's an alternative to anxiety. And if we're just talking about basic anxiety, then peace would be something like not thinking about it, right? It would be a, a temporary relief from the situation. I'm not anxious because I'm not, you know, I, I'm not anxious because I don't care. But that's not, what, that's not what's being suggested here. Right here, actually, not be anxious about anything, but come to the Lord in, in everything. Uh, this is something that, that Paul writes, that God writes through Paul, that will lead to a peace that's beyond understanding. A peace that will be beyond understanding. And this is this beautiful peace. It's not just a peace in the moment. This is not just a, a short, temporary reprieve from anxiety for the moment, like you go to sleep and then you wake up and guess what? You're anxious again because the problem's still there. It's not talking about that. This is a peace that surpasses all understanding, an eternal peace. This is the kind of peace when you no longer have anything to be anxious about ever, ever. And you don't even have to be anxious about having something to be anxious about coming up. It's just, it's an eternal peace. Like it doesn't, like it defies understanding. It goes beyond understanding. It's this beautiful peace. And it's a Christian peace. This is what, this is what it's getting at. Because the Lord is at hand, the Christian knows that he can talk to the Lord or she can talk to the Lord whenever they want. And they know that God is not only at hand, present, listening, caring, and loving, but he also knows what's best. He also has the power to do what's best. This isn't a mechanical ritual of, you know, centering yourself in mindless meditation, then you find peace. No, no, no. This is a peace that comes from a very tangible, actual thing. The peace that, that, that goes beyond all understanding is the Christian peace that they understand, well, that they, understand, that, they, that they receive when they realize that although there are troubles in the world, there are certainly troubles to be anxious about, but the Christian does not have to dwell on that anxiety. When the Christian starts to feel anxiety, they can find comfort in the fact that this problem is a temporary problem. That this problem is actually something that's already solved. This sickness, this lost loved one, this election, this whatever it is, it's already been solved because sooner or later, it's all going to come to an end. This suffering, this, this thing that's causing anxiety is only temporary. But the Christian has the promise of salvation, of eternal life without fear or suffering or illness or sadness at all. And so the Christian has the ability to have this peace, this special peace that, you know, surpasses understanding. The Christian is able to have this peace because the Christian knows how it's all going to come out in the end. It's a beautiful thing to think about. 
And it's something that only Christians have. Sure, you have other religions. They may say, you know, well, I have, I have peace in my religion. I have peace in my faith. Do you, though? Do you? If you're a part of a religion that says you have to follow the five pillars of Islam, if you're a part of a religion that says that as a Buddhist, you must reject all, all desire, you must desire to remove all desire, have you done that? Have you really? Hmm? Have you done everything that you need to be to be guaranteed in your, in your salvation? No, you haven't. No, if you're going to be honest with yourself, no, you haven't. Uh, you know, you've got these different religions. You, you can even have a lack of a religion. You say, it all goes away when I die. Well, you'd be wrong, but, you know, not, you're still, I mean, I don't know. This is, this is this beautiful peace that only Christians have because only Christians have that certainty of their salvation. And it's not based on them. It's based on what God did for them. And it's not based on a transaction that they have to perform. It's based on a transaction that was already performed. And it's a gift to them. It's not based on their obedience. It's not based on their, on their ability to resist sin. It's based on everything that God has already done for the Christian. And that's why the Christian does not need to be anxious. In fact, the Christian shouldn't be anxious. If the Christian feels that anxiety, endures that anxiety, then they have a solution for their problem, whatever it is. It's temporary. It's suffering. It absolutely is, but it's temporary. And God has already taken care of the end game. So Christian, do not be anxious, but instead, trust in God, come to Him in all things with prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. And the peace the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That peace which is your promise of eternal life. Amen. John chapter 1, the Word incarnate, the one who made everything, and without him nothing was made that has been made. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's a beautiful piece of, beautiful piece of scripture. But what if the word to make was not, maybe what if that wasn't the best translation? Or what if there was a little bit more to that? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Well, let's get into it. He made everything. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, and so forth. Now, of course, this is talking about in the beginning. That immediately makes your brain jump back to Genesis. Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And that's a wonderful place to go. I mean, Scripture's connected like that. In the beginning. This is before time was created. This is before the universe was created. In the beginning. And definitely the Word was there in the beginning, and the Word was the effective force of creation. We often think about it like, well, the Father is the one who creates, and you imagine some the dude with a beard flowing, and stars, and, and you know, and he's waving his hands around. But no, no, what God does is he speaks, he speaks the universe into existence. The universe is created by the Word, let there be light, and it's this sort of, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, kind of a, 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 a a play on words, maybe? It's a word that's got multiple meanings. It's talking about the word. And on one hand, yes, God speaks and uses his word to create. Let there be, and it was. On the other hand, John 1 tells us that the word is Christ. That the word is the second person of the Trinity. The word is Jesus. So Jesus is the effective force in creation. And that's, that's 
that's mind blowing enough as it is on its own. The second person, the Trinity, that he was, you know, he's involved because a lot of times people think, well, you know, this whole, you know, this part about Jesus doesn't start until the New Testament, and they don't really consider that the second person of the Trinity, who was later incarnate as Jesus, uh, was around and involved in the beginning. But again, I want to get back to the actual Greek word for, well, the Greek word that John uses here. Uh, and how it doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't necessarily mean to fabricate, to organize, to structure, to create with one's hands, to, you know, there's all kinds of Greek words that are used, uh, that can be used to, to have specific types of, uh, of, of making, of creating, of creation, of generation. To, to, to generate, to Genesis, to, you know, there are all these Greek words that could have been used to give birth, and nothing was, you know, generated that has that wasn't generated by him, like that kind of thing. But instead he uses this Greek word, and the Greek word is agenito, agenito. And I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but bear with me. Agenito does not just mean, it can mean to make, in a sense. It can mean that in a sense. But the word means a a lot more than just to, to create, to fabricate. And we think of, what is it, deism? I think it's deism where they've got the watchmaker guy, where God creates a, a watch and there it is and the watch is lying there and somebody stumbles upon the watch and say, oh, what a wonderful creation. But the, the, the point is that God, God is a watchmaker. He creates something and then steps back and is no longer involved in creation. And this, this meaning of the word agenito actually conflicts with that meaning of a, a, a creator who steps back from creation. Instead, the word agenito can mean to become or to happen or to accomplish. So if you use that translation instead of to, to make, to create, then suddenly there's more meaning in this John 1 text. Nothing was accomplished that was not accomplished by the Word, by Christ, by the second person of the Trinity. Suddenly you realize that Jesus, that the second person of the Trinity, is intimately involved with everything going on in the Old Testament. Everything that happens, all these prophecies, all of, like go back to the Proto-Evangelion in, in Genesis chapter 3, where God says that there's going to be a Savior. And he promises this to Adam and Eve and to all of fallen creation that there's going to be a Savior. God is working at that moment. He already knows what's going to happen. He's working at that moment to accomplish everything necessary for a Messiah to come and to save the world. This continues on in the prophecies. This continues on in the promise to, for example, to Abraham and his offspring, that all nations will call you blessed. That this, this, this promise that will come through the seed, through the, through the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and eventually you've got David, and eventually through their lineage you've got Joseph and you've got Mary and you've got... Jesus, who's born in the New Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament is this active involvement of God in accomplishing step after step towards this goal that culminates in the birth of Christ in the New Testament. I talked about it like Advent. Advent means looking forward to, you're looking forward to something in Advent. The season of Advent comes before Christmas. And we have, you know, weeks in Advent, and you've seen the, the different colored candles being lit over the course of the weeks. And I talk about that the Advent, from the perspective of God, didn't begin a month before or four weeks before Christmas, but rather the Advent of the first Christmas began in the beginning, when it was just the Word, when it was, you know, all of this creation and all of these other things happening. Before Adam and Eve... Before mankind was made, God was accomplishing the steps necessary. God already knew the steps necessary for the salvation of mankind. It's this huge, huge, long period of Advent, thousands and thousands of years before Christ is born in that manger in Bethlehem. It's wonderful to think about that this isn't just a creation and step away. This is an involvement every step of the way. God did make the heavens and the earth, but God was also actively involved. Again, the Greek word agenito, to accomplish. Nothing was accomplished that was not accomplished by Christ, by that second person of the Trinity, by God. It was all accomplished by him. 
And it all culminates in that beautiful Christmas story of that true God, true man in the manger. That true God, that true man who would die for your sins, rise again to grant eternal life. Nothing has been accomplished that was not accomplished by God. Well, hey, look at that, it's time for donuts. You take care. So God gets in a wrestling match with Jacob and loses. God gets in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this Canaanite woman and she convinces him even though he seems like he doesn't want to agree with her. Man, that really seems like God is showing weakness. <laughs> yep, you got it. Let's get it. So first and foremost, look, let's deal with this Canaanite woman. This Canaanite woman comes up to Jesus and she wants help because uh, her daughter, I believe, is, is, is possessed. So she, she says, you know, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. And she says, Lord help. Anyways, she's doing this and, and, and Jesus isn't responding to her. In fact, Jesus does not say a word. He doesn't say a word and then his disciples are like, Jesus, this lady is following us. Please send her away because she's annoying and causing a ruckus. And Jesus says, you know, I've, I've, not, I've come for the, for the lost sheep of Israel, not for these Gentiles, basically. And then she falls at his feet and she begs him. She says, Lord, help me. And he says, this is, this is savage. Jesus says uh, that it's not right uh, to give, basically, to give the food to the dogs. Um, he accuses her of, of basically being a dog, first of all, which isn't nice, uh, and second of all, um, of trying to take the food that belongs to the children. Now, she responds, of course, as you remember from the story, she responds, well, fine. But even the, even the dogs are fed from the crumbs, from the scraps, from the master's table. And Jesus marvels at her faith. He says, wow, what great faith you have. Let it be as you desire. Her daughter's healed, just like that. Well, was Jesus just bested in wits by this Canaanite woman, this mortal woman? I thought he was supposed to be God. I mean, he is God, right? And then we've got this Old Testament lesson where, like, out of the blue, and I love the setup for this. This is like, you know, there's no introduction. There's no, like, Stone Cold Steve Austin coming out. No, no, you know. It's just these two guys, Jacob starts fighting with this dude. Like, they're just wrestling. That's how it starts. Like, he sends his family and everything before him, and then he's just sitting by the creek, and he starts wrestling this guy. And he wrestles him all night, and, and it doesn't relent, and they're, they're, they're still fighting all night, and, and he's not defeated all night. And then eventually, so what the guy does is, what the guy, what God does, uh, the man that, that, that Jacob's wrestling with does, is he touches Jacob's hip, and Jacob's hip goes out of, goes out of place. And, and all of a sudden, you know, he, Jacob is limping from then on. Uh, and then Jacob still won't let go of this guy. And, and, and this guy's like, let me go because the morning has broken. It's, it's now morning time. The sun's up. What are you doing? Let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go in, uh, until you bless me, unless you bless me. Uh, and then God, of course, asks him, says, what's your name? My name is Jacob. He says, ah, I'm going to tell you that your name is Israel now because you've striven, you struggled with God and, and persevered, whatever. And Jacob, Israel now is his name. Jacob says, well, what's your name? What, what do I call you? Now, God gave his name to Moses, Yahweh, right? Um, I am, or I am he that is, or I am that I am, or I am he who causes, however you translate it. God gave his name to Moses, but he doesn't, we don't have a record of him giving his name to Jacob here. Uh, and basically he does, he says, why do you want to know my name? And then he blesses him. Like he doesn't even like tell him his name, but he's like, all right, you know what? Here, you're blessed. Uh, and he blesses him. And then you see the consequences of that later on. 
So you've got these two examples of mortal humans struggling with God. And both of them have faith and both of them persevere and both of them are ultimately blessed. The woman gets the healing for the daughter that she asked for and Jacob gets the blessing that he demanded. Now, what is with it? What is with this, this, this God who is supposed to be all-powerful, immortal, how come he's losing wrestling matches to mortal men? How come he's being bested in, in, a, in a challenge of wits with a, uh, with a Canaanite woman? Like, what is the deal? Isn't this, isn't this, doesn't this show some weakness? Now, for a Christian, you're already like, oh, well, these are beautiful stories and stuff because you understand the, the concept of, of God loving these people. But for a non-Christian, you're listening to this and you're going like, Dude, this isn't a very powerful God if he's getting beaten by some random dude in the wilderness and some Canaanite lady like outsmarts him. And in fact, a non-Christian would bring up a third conflict. They would say, okay, what about the struggle between death and God? Now, death and God struggle three times, just like the others struggle three times. Death and God struggle three times. The first struggle between death and God is in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin. They bring death into the world. And the first creature that has to suffer Death is the animal that God kills to make a covering for the nakedness of Adam and Eve, an animal skin covering. That's the first, that's the first victory of death, let's put it. It looks like death was victorious because death took a life. Now the next, the next, struggle, the next struggle that I see with death and God is this, this longer struggle. It's a struggle, the death of the brother in the field, the death of the, the, of the men, women, and children in, in the flood, Noah's Ark, uh, the death of um, the death of the of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, the death of the Israelites in the wilderness, the death of of Goliath, and the death of everybody he slew before you know before David took him out, the the death of those uh, that Saul killed, the thousands Saul killed, the ten thousands that Saul killed, the death of holy men, of unholy men, of men in palaces, of men crying out in the wilderness. Death is just wreaking havoc on every human walking around on the earth. He's killing animals. He's killing people. And finally, the final, third and final struggle with death is on Good Friday. Every living thing on earth in the universe has struggled with this curse of death, has suffered under this curse of death, except one, except one living being. And on that day, on Good Friday, that living being was pinned to that cross. On that day, God died. So death seemingly triumphed over animals. Death seemingly triumphed over mankind, and death seemingly triumphed over God himself, the author of life. Well, does this mean that death is victorious at the end? Is this the victory? No, I'll tell you where the victory is. Look, go look and see if death was defeated. Look, three days later in the tomb, the empty tomb, there's your answer of death won. You see, go back to it. Go back to the, the Canaanite woman. God struggles with this Canaanite woman, and she perseveres, and she wins. But she doesn't win because she bested God. She won because God let her win. God showed his weakness, and in his weakness, he showed his strength. When she got that blessing, that healing, God got what he wanted. God got to love, to show his love to this woman. When she won, God won. And this, the same thing with Jacob, Israel. When he struggles with God, he doesn't win because he's stronger or a better you know, grappler than God. He's better at Brazilian jiu-jitsu than God. No, he wins because God lets him win. God shows his weakness, and in his weakness, he shows his strength. When Jacob wins, God wins because God wanted to bless him in his struggle with death. Death succeeds against these animals, but God uses the death of animals to cover mankind, to give them food and clothing and sacrifices for their sin. And then death struggles against humanity and starts taking human lives. And God uses this evil sting of death to take his people out of a world full of suffering to be with him. And he uses this evil sting of death to curb evil people who would do harm to others. Evil people die and are prevented from, from doing further harm to others. It's, the evil sting of death is used to show the consequences of sin. And then ultimately with the death of Christ on the cross, with the death of God on the cross, again, God wins at the end because with the death of God, death itself dies. With the death of God, the sins of mankind are paid for. So this isn't a victory for death. 
God lets death win in these cases and uses that win, that victory, for his own victory. In his weakness, God shows his strength. Man, just think about it. All of the strength of the devil, the world, and death itself, sin, death, and the devil, doing its worst, and God being as weak as a child in a manger, as weak as a man who would suffer and die on the cross, and God still triumphs. God is still victorious in his weakness against something in its strength. So yeah, God does show his weakness on purpose. God dies. God dies, he loses a, a wrestling match. He loses an argument, all to bless his people. So keep that in mind. God loves you. God blessed you. And God died for you. In his weakness, he showed his strength. <laughs> what a God. What a God. The incarnation and subsequent birth of God as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man in Jesus Christ, the incarnation and birth of Christ has implications directly to who you are and who you are in relation to God. You see, before this, before God became man, the second person of the Trinity became incarnate as Jesus Christ and walked the earth, there was a division between God and man. Even at the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, as perfect as they were, they were still creatures. They were still creation. There was a separation from creator to creation. The creator was not creation. The creation was not the creator. Adam and Eve, as much as they were made in the image of God, they were not God. They were not divine like God. They were distinct. There was that separation. It was as though the author of the book decided to write characters based on himself in the book. Even as perfectly as he does that, he is not in the book. The characters in the book are not real in the sense that they can interact with him. There is a distinction between the creator and the creation. There is a chasm of relationship that cannot be bridged. At least it could not until the incarnation. And what happened in the incarnation? God did not look down at humanity and say, you know what? I'm going to make you guys gods. I'm going to make you like literal, like what I am. I'm going to make you God too. And then just raise them up and, you know, they all become. No, that's not what happened. It was the other way around. Instead of just staying up on his throne and maybe even making lesser gods out of all of humanity, what God did in the second person of the Trinity is he became incarnate. He came down from heaven. It's often called the humiliation. Um, the second person of the Trinity came down from heaven and was incarnate as a human being. Fully God, still, but now, for the first time ever, fully man as well. This is who Jesus is. This division, this, this higher and lower creator and creation division now started to go away. It was now removed. All of a sudden, the creator was what he created. God was human, still is. Jesus still is human. The other persons of the Trinity, they're not. The second person of the Trinity took on human form, became fully human, and retained divine form, was always fully God. And this division, this separation, this unbridgeable chasm between creator and creation was suddenly removed. Suddenly there was an actual relationship between God and man. Suddenly they were part of the same family, like in, a, in, in, like, a, in like a physical, genetic, biological sense. Suddenly, biologically, humanity was related to God. That was new. That was brand new. That never happened before the incarnation. Now, because of this relationship between God and man, even if you're thinking about them like different species, all of a sudden now they're, they're, this relation is, is bound together in Jesus Christ. This has implications not just for God, but this has implications for all of humanity. You as well. 
suddenly you are related to God in like a, like a technical, literal sense. You have the same species as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Jesus was just like you in that he was human, fully human. It, that's the incarnation, right? That, 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 that chasm between divine, divine and mortal, between creator and creation is bridged. And that has, beyond just being like, right, mind-blowing, that has serious implications because now you are related to God the Father. Because if Jesus is your brother, then the Father is your Father, which is said as much, obviously, when Jesus later teaches the, the disciples how to pray, pray like this, our Father, right? Our Father, not Jesus' Father, who I'm not really related to. No, our Father in heaven, that's how we are to pray later on. Now, Titus chapter 3 actually talks about this, the implications of what this means to now be related to God. Chapter 3, it says this, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, baptism, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs, H-E-I-R-S, heirs. This means that not only is God our Father, but we have an inheritance from him. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. No matter how rich your parents are, no matter how wealthy they are, whatever they have, when they die and you inherit it, or if they decide to give you your inheritance before you die, prodigal son, then, I mean, all of that stuff, you can spend it. You can lose it. You can be, it can be stolen. It can be destroyed, moth and rust, all of this good stuff. It can go away. As great as you, your dad gives you a castle and a fleet of cars and all that can be taken away. It's not eternal. It is all temporary. No matter how rich, how powerful your parents are, they can only give you so much. But what you get from God, God now being your father, you now being the heir of the inheritance of God is eternal life. This is the incarnation of God. This is why Christmas matters. Well, one of the million reasons why it matters, but why it directly changes who you are and who you are in relation to God. You are now related to the divine. Your brother is God. Your father is God. That's wild. Now, this is talking about, if you look other places in the Bible, you'll have, you'll have the unfaithful saying, well, Abraham is our father and yada, yada. And Jesus is like, nah, because if somebody is your father, then you respect them, you honor them, you follow them. But who they followed instead, they follow, he says, your father is the devil who you follow. And this is, this is the implication for the Christian life. This doesn't just mean that because Jesus was incarnate, that guess what? Universalism, everybody goes to heaven no matter what. Because it is possible to reject your heritage, to reject your family, which is what unbelievers do. But in the case of Christians, baptized or on their way to be baptized, as all Christians are, either baptized or on their way to be baptized, even if they die before they can, the washing and regeneration, God pours out this, this inheritance. This is why in your baptism, you have a name placed on you. You have the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is now your family name. You are now part of that family. In faith, as a community of faith, you are now related to God. You now have access to the inheritance of the Father. So, these things, there are things that happen in the Bible. Things like David and Goliath. David kills Goliath. Fantastic, very important story. Has long-reaching implications, but the moment that David killed Goliath, that didn't change your identity. That didn't change who you were in relationship to God. That was part of a series of steps that was important for something. But that did not immediately change who you were. What changed who you were were the events like the incarnation. God became man. The birth. God was born as man. Your baptism. 
the institution of baptism, where God says, this is how God chooses to adopt people into his kingdom, how he chooses to bestow the name of the the family, how he chooses to wash away sins, to grant eternal life through baptism, through faith. These change who you are, not just in, in, in the sense of who you are like, in your own identity, but who you are in relationship to God, which changes who you are in relationship to everything. If you are now related to the creator of the entire universe, you are above and distinct from every other created thing that is not. Then your brother went forward. He lived that perfect life for you. This Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, a human life that you were unable to live. He lived a life you could not live so you could live a life you could never deserve. Suffered, died on the cross, paid for your sins, was buried, rose out of the tomb, and ascended into heaven bodily. As a firstborn from the dead. In other words, we are going to follow in his footsteps with our death, our ascension into heaven in spirit, our physical resurrection on the last day, and the rest of our lives living with God, our Father, our brother, and our spirit. All of this in the incarnation and the birth of Christ. Wow. Merry Christmas and uh, congratulations on the new family you are now a part of. God bless you. You take care.